One of the things that I'm very grateful for at Woodland is how many strong and happy marriages that we have at our church. I'm grateful for couples that love each other. And like any other pastor, there are many times when I have to walk through people who are having troubles and problems in their marriages. One of the things that I always say to them is don't feel bad that you're having a struggle or having a problem in your marriage because all marriages go through struggles and go through problematic times and sometimes even go through dry spells. Can anybody here say an amen to that? We get a card every year and a call every year from the same couple that I married, oh gosh, 40 years ago. And they still call and write us every year on our anniversary to congratulate Becky and I and to tell us how they watch even now over social media and they learn from our interaction and thank us for our love for God and love for one another. One of the things that they've thanked us for is how that we've always been honest about any conflicts that we've gone through. Those first two years were great years, but they were challenging years. If you've ever been through premarital counseling with me, you know there's a term that I don't like, but I always use to help people understand because it's such a mechanical term, and that's the term adjustment. When I think of adjustment, I think of a crescent wrench. When I think of adjustment, I think of getting something adjusted where it's balanced. And adjustment is not something we really like to think of when it comes to marriage. We like to think of romance, and we think, like to think of compatibility. And by the way, there is no such thing as two compatible people. But adjustment is one of those mechanical terms, and I just haven't been able to find a better term for it. And you're welcome to submit one to me, because every time I say that, people will send me another word. And I know you've gone to the thesaurus, and you've looked it up. I've done that too. But adjustment is exactly what's taking place in our lives. And we've talked about that adjustment period that we had, because we came from such different homes and different family backgrounds. We've talked about some of the funny things in life that have happened to us that have required adjustment to how one another does things. This morning, just because I miss my wife so much and she is on a plane back from Hawaii, can somebody say amen this morning? I am so glad she's on her way home. But this morning, I've got a pair of socks on that she bought me some socks that I have refused to wear. That's how much I miss her because I like black socks, brown socks, and white running socks. But I have some colored socks on this morning, and I made sure my jeans were long enough to cover them up so you wouldn't see them. But I miss her so much because she says I'm a boring dresser. I just don't like a lot of clothing options when it comes to my clothes. But I put on my socks this morning, and I ripped them off, and I thought I should wear these for Becky. Probably the only time I wear them, but I wear these for Becky today. They go through times of just adjusting and learning how to please our wife or learning how to please our husband. Sometimes when I'm traveling, and I like to drive, I think a lot when I drive, I listen to books when I drive, but sometimes when I'm traveling, I'll get tired, I'll get sleepy. Is anybody like that as well? And aren't you grateful there's a place you can pull off the interstate called a rest area and you can just pull over? And I have been known at times just to lay my head back or lean over the steering wheel because I won't sleep long that way and take a brief nap and then get out and walk around and stretch a little bit. And about 15 minutes, I'm refreshed and I'm ready to go again. 
Well, I want to talk to you about protecting your marriage, and I'd like you to think about the service this morning as an off-ramp on the interstate where we take a moment to think, and we take a moment to pause, and we take a moment to rest. In the Wall Street Journal not too long ago, there was a study carried about how significant events had happened in people's lives. And they've looked at it, and they found that at birthdays, it fell on a decade that people made significant changes in their life. And the three most significant changes were these. One, people exercised more vigorously. Two, people sought extramarital affairs. And three, they ended their lives. One of those is very virtuous. That's to take care of your health. The other two are immoral and destructive to your life. And I don't want to beat up on anybody this morning that's been through a divorce. I don't want to beat up on anybody that's, that's gone through an affair or anything like that. It's important that you hear that. We're not even going to talk about that beyond this point in the message. But I want you to relax and open up and receive, especially if you're in your second or your third marriage, and hear what God has to say to you about protecting the marriage you have. If on our 39th or our 49th or our 29th year, whatever it is, if on that ninth year, so to speak, we start doing some self-evaluation and we're going to make a significant event, let's make this a ninth year where we think about our marriages and what we do to protect them and to see them grow. At the same time, I hope to be able to share with you some tips that Becky and I have learned more my tips that I have learned. Here's one of my tips, is when you do agree to go shopping with your wife, don't walk too quickly through the mall. Very important tip. Walk slowly, walk at her pace. Number two, when you put your food in the microwave to heat it, be sure you put some saran wrap over it. If you want a happy wife and a happy life, you'll always put saran wrap over your bowl of chili before you put it inside the microwave. Worse than that is not to cover it and then walk away and leave it for her to clean up. Number three, don't ask her to get to the point when she's trying to explain something to you so you can go back to the football game. I don't know if any of you have ever committed those unpardonable sins. If you have, guys, would you lift your hand and just let me know? Thank you for those of you that are male just like me. For those of you that didn't lift your hand, you are probably that one in a million husband. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me this morning. I want to read to you from the scriptures today. This is God's word to every one of us and to those of you thinking of getting married. Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. Let's read that together. Remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Now, stop right there. Hard stop. That means you have to trust. That means you can't live suspiciously. When you get married, you commit, and we talk about this in premarital counseling. You have to trust. Trust is a risky thing. Trust will bring out the best in people. But you can't live your life suspicious. You have to live in a life of trust. If your trust is betrayed, it will hurt deeply. Let me say that again. If your, betr if your trust is betrayed, it will hurt you beyond ways that you can imagine. But God will heal you, and God will deal with and judge the person who breaks that trust. Does that make sense? 
There are some things we leave in the hands of God. So let me read that again. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Now, something else is interesting. God's talking about honoring marriage, but notice this transition in this word. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. And there's not anything in our culture or society that strengthens that teaching right there other than the church. In other words, when you get married, don't go into debt trying to get all the stuff that your parents have worked all their life to get. He said, don't let be deceived by easy credit. Don't be deceived by those who want to sell you something quickly. I mean, this is all in the context of honoring marriage. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, let's say it together, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking you right now, would you speak to our hearts, open our hearts to your word like never before, and God, would you bless us with godly homes that our children will grow up in and say, I am so grateful that my mom and dad loved God, loved one another, and loved us. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. You can be seated this morning. Great marriages thrive. They don't survive. Great marriages actually can thrive. You can grow in your relationship, and you can grow in your love. Martin Luther said, there is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship communion or company than a good marriage. That's a great statement. There's no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. As many of you know, I've talked about this before. When I preached on Martin Luther in a Wednesday night service one night, I talked about his life, the risk of faith that he made, but Martin Luther married a former Catholic nun. She, he helped smuggle her and some other nuns out of a nunnery and married her, and they had this beautiful, happy marriage that produced happy children. I've learned a lot reading about Martin and Catherine's marriage. I've learned one of the things that I learned from them, that they were a responsible couple. They were a couple that took ownership of the problems and the challenges they had. And think about the problems and the challenges that Martin and Catherine Luther had because of the Reformation and because of all of the people that were trying to kill Martin, would have liked to have killed Catherine, would have liked to have taken their children away from them. They lived at a time of religious and political intrigue, but they owned the good and the bad in their relationship. Another thing I learned from reading about Martin and Catherine's marriages was that they were a hopeful couple. Even when all hell seemed to be breaking loose around them, they kept their eyes on what was good. They kept their eyes on what was beautiful. They kept their eyes and their faith locked onto God. They did not keep their eyes locked onto all the intrigue that was around them. Another thing I learned from their marriage <clears throat> was that Martin and Catherine not only understood each other, but they were empathetic. Catherine understood the trials that Martin was going through. She supported him. She had compassion on him. 
Luther understood what Catherine was going through, the whole change of life, the adjustment, so to speak, of living in a Catholic nunnery and now becoming not only the wife of the most hunted, quote, heretic in all of Europe, but also becoming a mother and building a family and having all of these young preachers come to their home who wanted to learn from Martin Luther. A good marriage I learned from Martin and Catherine was a marriage that was made up of two forgiving people. Martin Luther was not the easiest man to live with. <clears throat> he was given like Charles Spurgeon was to fits of depression. He was given to fits of anger and saying things at time that he shouldn't have said. And as he got older, that became worse. As a matter of fact, his enemies today still try to use those things that he said when he got older and wasn't as responsible for his mind against him. I have a friend that was a very godly man, is, and he's now in heaven, but towards the end of his life, he developed a disease that elderly people get sometime. It affects the brain. The total filter is gone. And he said some very inappropriate things. But what I loved about the community of faith where he had pastored for so many years, they surrounded him along with his children. They guarded him and they protected him. And they understood the toll that aging had taken upon him. But I also learned this from Martin and Luther, Martin Luther and Catherine Luther. They were a committed couple. They were not only committed to Christ, but they were committed to one another. When our boys were younger one day, Christopher walked into me and he said to me, Daddy, who do you love most, God or Mama? And I said, I love God most. And he looked at me. He says, do you love God more than you love us? And I go, of course, Christopher, I love God more than I love you and your brothers and your sister. And I could tell that he was just a little bit puzzled by that. So I took him up and I sat him in my lap and I said, son, understand this. The more that daddy loves God, the better I can love your mother. The more that daddy loves God, the better I can love you and your brothers and your sister. You see, putting God first in our life makes us capable of things that we never thought we were capable of. It helps us in those ninth years as we come to those epics in our life where we make those huge life-changing decisions. It helps us to be able to make moral choices, rich choices, and choices that bless one another. And I think another key to protecting your marriage is found in another teaching that the Apostle Paul did. Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit. You're all familiar with that passage. And what does he mean when he says being filled with the Spirit? And the problem is, too many of us tend to think of being filled with the Spirit as we think of the Holy Spirit as an it, when the Holy Spirit is a person. And I think what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with God, to be filled with the person. When Becky and I first started dating, I have to tell you something, I was filled with Becky. All I could think about was Becky. Wherever I went, all I could talk about was Becky. When I dreamed, I dreamed about Becky. When I, when I went to another church to preach, and they, I would tell them all about Becky, this girl that I was going to marry. I was preaching a youth camp, a young single guy preaching a youth camp. And that week, I preached about two things. I preached about Jesus, and I preached about Becky. I was filled with Becky. She filled my thoughts. She filled my emotions. Every part of me was in love with Becky. 
As I've thought about that through the years, it's helped me to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. There have been times when I've been filled with a professor as I, as I studied in college under a certain professor and his thoughts and his challenges, they, they filled my mind, they filled my thoughts. I wanted to be like that professor. As a matter of fact, one time I was speaking, again, this was before I married Becky, I was speaking and one of my classmates came out to hear me speak that night and we're coming home and he says to me, Dennis, you need to be careful. You sound exactly like Brother Goldman. I said, you're kidding. He goes, yes, you sounded just like him. I was so full of what he was teaching me and what I was learning from him that my mannerisms were being affected by that. I'm wearing socks that I'm kind of uncomfortable with this morning, but I love my wife. And sometimes when I have done things that I'm uncomfortable, it's because I love Jesus. It's walking across the grocery store at times because the Holy Spirit has said, I just want you to walk over and say hi to that person and watch what happens. And that's kind of a weird thing to do. Wouldn't you agree to walk over to a total stranger and just say hi? And then you watch the miracle as that person begins to open up and have a conversation. And there is this point of meeting because you get into that uncomfortable place. But to be filled with the Spirit means you're under the influence of the Spirit. It means you're full of the Spirit's influence in your life. That's the reason that in that passage, if you'll look with me just now at it, that's the reason in that passage it says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. In other words, alcohol will influence you. It will lower your inhibitions. Matter of fact, one passage in the book of uh, Psalms that I was sharing with somebody last night, wine will gladden your heart. That's a King James Version, a way of wine will alter your perception of things. It will just do things to you didn't understand. I want you to know when you are full of your wife or full of your husband, they will have an influence on your life. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that this morning? Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you don't think this is sacrilegious, but as I've meditated on this this week, from time to time, I've inserted Becky's name right there. Don't be drunk with wine, but instead, be filled with your love for Becky. Sing about her. Make a song in your heart about her. Give thanks for her to God in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. For God gave her to me. For he who finds a godly wife has found a good thing. Can you say amen this morning? That is what the Lord says to us. And ladies, you can do that same thing. It's different than a crush. How many of you ever had a crush when you were in high school or grammar school. Did you ever have a crush? Yeah. You know, you had this crush and you were so infatuated with that person. Then how many of you remember when something happened that you saw something in that person? Maybe it was physical. Maybe it was an attitude. And you saw something in that person and suddenly that crush just went away. <laughs> remember that as well? Oh, yeah. Boy, there's a lot of nodding and smiling in here. You see, love is different than a crush. Love last. Love last. I was in a meeting this week with some friends of mine. 
One's an executive of a nonprofit. Another's a retired Marine. Another's a high-powered businesswoman. All aggressive, active people. One of them said this in our meeting as we were talking about marriage and what it meant and how to have lasting marriages. One of them said this, said the one thing I had to learn was my spouse is not my project. They are my partner. And if there's anything I can say to you this morning that I think was dropped fresh in my spirit, it's what that man said this week. My spouse is not my project. My spouse is my partner in life. Husbands, understand this. When the Bible says, wives, submit yourselves unto your husband, that is not carte blanche for us to dominate and control our wives. Because as you read that sentence in the Greek, it's actually connected with the thought of mutual submission, that we mutually submit to one another. There is a principle of headship. I will admit that. There is a principle of headship, but my job in life is not to be Becky's boss. My job in life is to love her as Christ loves the church. Does that make sense? And if we understood that, we could help people apply this to their lives in ways that we build marriages that protect. So how do we do this? And this is only a two-point message this morning, but this next point has a lot of sub-points under it, okay? So think of this as your growth work. How do we move to this place where we're building godly marriages and happy marriages? Number one, be faithful to God's design for my marriage. Be faithful to what God says is a biblical pattern for marriage. Never be ashamed of that. Don't misrepresent it because you try somehow or another to use it as a, as a way to power up on one another. The moment I try to power up on my wife or power up on a friend or amp up on my children, that's the moment that I realize I'm out of control. In love, we're not trying to amp up and power up. We're trying to walk together as one in the Spirit. Somebody say amen this morning. We're trying to walk together as one. We're trying to build something together for the glory of God. Isn't that what our passage from the book of Hebrews said this morning? And therefore, we don't fear what the rest of the world says. My uncle collects hammers. And according to NBC, who did an interview with him, my uncle has the largest hammer collection in the world. I don't know why he got started collecting hammers, but that was his thing. And he's got a whole warehouse full of hammers, of all kinds of hammers. And NBC came and did an interview with him and walked through his warehouse of hammers. And, you know, he is the first true MC hammer. He was around a long time before anybody else was. But everywhere my uncle goes, he's got a hammer in the car. And he'll hold a hammer up to you, and he'll say to you, you can do one of two things with this hammer. You can tear something down, or you can build something up. You can destroy something, or you can build something. I mean, he's got more stories about hammers. When we're all together for a family time in the holiday, we go, no more stories about hammers, Okay. He's got stories about the scars that he's got from hammers. He's got stories about, you know, when he's let loose of a hammer and how it hurts somebody else and how you had to stay in control. He just loves hammers. So can I say to you, first of all, be a builder. 
Determine that you can be a builder because with your words you build up or you tear down. The scripture says this in Proverbs 24 and verse 27, put first things first. There's a wonderful book by that title called First Things that you ought to read by Stephen Covey. Put things first things first. Prepare your work outside. Get it ready for yourself in the field. And afterward, build your house and establish a home. Now, do you remember what I said earlier when I read from the passage in Hebrews of how that when God is telling us how to honor marriage, one of the things we want to do is avoid debt and not get caught up in this love of money. And so the Bible is saying to a young couple here, before you get married, put first things first. Get your education done. Get established in your career. Get, your, get everything ready. And then build your house. And notice what it says. Establish a home. The reason I'm using the Amplified Version is because that in parenthesis helps you to understand they're explaining what that word means in, in the Hebrew language there. In other words, we've gotten everything reversed in society, and it's why divorce is so rampant. It's why children feel, are so afraid to trust because of what they've seen their parents do. We first have sex before we get to know each other, and then we try to get to know each other, and then we decide we don't like each other, and then we, get, we decide we're going to not be married anymore. Then we go and repeat that cycle with several other people. The Bible says that sex is more than skin on skin. When you have sexual relationships with somebody, you are giving a part of yourself to them. And it's so important to recognize that. God who created human life understands that principle so much and loves you so much, he's not a killjoy. Sex was God's idea. And may I add, it was a pretty doggone good idea. <laughs> Somebody say amen. <laughs> Matter of fact, an old man said to me one time, he said, son, if there was a better idea, God kept it all unto himself. And he was giving me counsel and his friendship and encouragement on getting married. And then he said, but it can burn your house down if you don't keep it confined to your fireplace. I thought about that this week as I stood with some men from the church as we watched one of the condominiums burn to the ground. And I looked across the street as another one began to burn. And I looked to the two on either side of it began to burn and realized as I remembered that old man saying to me, keep it in the fireplace, how destructive the fire of sexual love can be if it's not kept in the right place. Be a builder. You see, a home has boundaries. A home has unique relationships to it. My relationship with Becky and my children, it's, there's no other relationship like that. There's, there's no other relationship in my life that can compare to that. We left our fathers and our mothers, and we established a home together. We, we got everything together. We weren't rich, we weren't wealthy, but we were ready to begin a marriage together because we got first things first, and then we started in marriage, but there was still an adjustment. It's not like you go step one, step two, step three, step four, 
pow, it's ready. You gotta build, you gotta take that hammer and you gotta build something together. One of the things that we learned is we need to have a business meeting in our home once a week to talk about what has to be done, bills that have to be paid, chores that need to be done, anything that needs to be talked about. And we don't do business on date nights. Do do you understand what I'm saying? If I want a romantic night, I don't need to talk about the visa bill. I haven't even looked at it since Becky has been to Hawaii. That tells you how much I miss her. Secondly, you got to stay connected. You got to be connected to one another. I laugh sometimes when I see these phone commercials. Can you hear me now? Or to people talking about dropped calls, and this is why they went to this carrier. The Bible says, whoever knows what you're thinking and planning except you yourself. I can't expect Becky to know what I'm thinking unless I talk with her about it. And Becky can't expect me to know what she's thinking unless she talks to me about it. And I do still, even though I've preached on this for over 20 years, I still have people come into my study sometimes and say, well, if they love me, they would know what I was thinking. Nah. If God says, nobody knows what you're thinking except you yourself, then you owe it to stay connected and to have a conversation together. You owe it to one another to be able to continue to communicate with each other, to pick up a phone, to to talk, to chat, to have those face-to-face meetings. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to take and apply this to marriage. Notice, first of all, if you will, circle this in your outline. We proclaim, that means we're communicating, what we've seen and heard. And so every evening, Becky and I talk about our day. We don't go, what are the top three things that happened to you today? But we talk enough to know what were the three most exciting things, what were the three most challenging things. And we don't go through a list. We just have conversation. Every couple is different. And as we sit and we talk, we're, we're connected, we're communicated. During the day, I, I have a little reminder. You know, you, this doesn't sound very romantic, but I have a little reminder before I come in here for mid-morning prayer. I have a little reminder. Call Becky. I call Becky and I talk with Becky for just a few minutes. And anything she tells me I, I, we need to pray about, I come in and we pray. We talk together. We've seen and we've heard. Why? So that we may have fellowship. Fellowship In the Bible, that word is not about having coffee and pie together. I'm all for coffee and pie. I'm all for coffee and anything, is to be truthful with you. You know, it's just coffee makes for a good conversation. However, understand this. I don't want to just go and have coffee with somebody at a coffee shop and sit there. I want to connect with them. I want to talk with them, hear what's going on in their life. If we think of it as just actually, just somehow or another we're having a dessert with one another, what we're doing is we're sharing each other's joys. That's what fellowship is. We're sharing each other's joys. We're sharing each other's victories. We're sharing each other's sorrows. And we're sharing each other's burdens. We're sharing those things that make up life. 
Last night, I had a very, very vivid dream. Matter of fact, so vivid it woke me up. I, I saw a, an Oldsmobile, one of those old land yacht Oldsmobiles. It was blue with a vinyl top. That tells you how old it was. And it flipped over, and, and, and I jumped out of my car, and I ran to help people out of that car. And I was amazed that nobody would come help me. And I, I was going through all the questions with the couple before I undid their seatbelt to, to let them out of the, to help them out of the car that you're taught in first aid. And finally, this little girl walked over there beside me, and there are all these adults standing way back, hollering, fire, fire. And only this little girl walks over to help me. And I, I, I pulled the old man out first, and I, I, I lean him up against this little girl. I said, honey, hold him while the paramedics come. And then I pulled out the, the elderly lady next and I held her and I pulled over there beside her husband. And I woke up and I thought, Lord, that was so vivid. What was that only about? about? And it was like the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, only those with childlike faith are willing to take the risk despite the fire. And I will submit to you this morning, only those with childlike faith are able to build strong and healthy marriages because we communicate. Children have no problem communicating. Sometimes they communicate too freely because they haven't developed a filter yet, right? Teenagers definitely have no problem. They've learned how to have a filter, but they can talk forever and ever. Matter of fact, they can have a conversation and text another friend at the same stinking time while they're doing that. And men can get together and talk about football and politics. And ladies, I don't know what you talk about, but you talk together. I started to say for a long time. I don't want to say that. But you talk and you have conversation. But I go to restaurants sometime, and Becky and I will go, look at this couple. They're in this nice restaurant, and he's got his phone out. She's got her phone out. They eat their meal. They get up and they leave. They've never said a word to one another. That's not fellowship, family. But hear me, because every man desires fellowship. Every woman desires fellowship. And if you don't find it at home, you will find it somewhere else. Sometimes it starts with that lingering stare, that look where two people's eyes connect. Then later, it develops to that time where you both just happen to show up at the water cooler or the coffee pot at the same time, and you smile just a little longer, and then you talk, and pretty soon you're having fellowship, but because you're full of the Spirit, there's a little alarm going off inside your heart. And if you ignore that alarm, I mean, you're full of the, it's called your conscience. And maybe right now that alarm is going off again because you know this is where you're at. And then it progresses to that point where one day you're talking and somebody just kind of reaches over and touches the arm. And instead of moving the arm, the arm, the hand just stays there. And that touch feels so good. And that electricity that you feel, there's an alarm going off. This is danger. But because you're not connecting at home, you're connecting with somebody else. And you need to hear me this morning. 
Only those with childlike faith will recognize this isn't right and quickly repent. And if you want to know why more revivals have started with teenagers than they have with adults, if you want to know why Jesus started the church with young people, it's because the young are quicker to repent than the old. The fourth thing I'd say is, well, let me read this scripture. This is what the wife of Solomon says. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I don't know of a man that wouldn't want to hear that from his wife. This is my beloved. This is my friend. Husbands and wives should be each other's very best friends. Can you say amen? Very best friends. Thirdly, be intimate. Intimacy requires work. As far as the Lord is concerned, men and women need each other. Would you read this with me? Put it up on the screen, if you would. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11. As far as the Lord is concerned, men and women need each other. Now, let me just do this right now, okay? Bill, you need Kim. Kim, I'm going to let you in on a secret. You really need Bill. (laughs) Let me do it like this. Chad, you need Sherry. Sherry, you need Bill. And Bob, you need Carrie. You don't need Sherry, and you don't need Kim. You need Carrie. And if you forget that, Carrie will swiftly remind you. And Carrie, you need Bob. Understand this this morning. The culture has glossed its mind. Men and women are not one another's enemies in the Bible. Men and women need each other just as God created us. Men and women build families. You can call it by any name that you want to, but God's design is that men and women need one another. Let's celebrate that this morning in the name of Jesus. So Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 3 to say the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Another translation says satisfy, but the word demand is not there. A husband doesn't demand to be satisfied. A wife doesn't demand to be satisfied. We look to satisfy one another. Does that make sense? God gave marriage and sex for more than having babies. If all we needed sex for was to have babies, then God didn't need to create it in a way that he intended it to bring so much pleasure and so much joy into our lives. But for God in his creative design that designed everything so perfectly, so beautifully, and so wonderfully to bring it together like this and then to put that very erotic book in the Bible called the Song of Solomon. 
Jewish people, and I recently asked my rabbi friend about this, and he said, yes, that's the tradition. Jewish people would not allow their teenage children, their children to read the Song of Solomon until they were 13 years old. We didn't know that. So we were paying our kids to read through their Bible. Andrew comes into the kitchen one day with his, to his mother reading the book of, of Song of Psalms in the message translation and goes, did you know this was in here? It's one of those times when I was glad I was away speaking somewhere. She says, when you get home, you're having the talk with our kids. You see, God says he wants us to be intimate. I know I quote the Wall Street Journal a lot, but I read it every day. There was another article in the Wall Street Journal recently that said... Couples need to learn, you can change the chemistry in marriage. And this counselor, who doesn't claim to be a Christian, he said, I am so tired of hearing couples say, there's just no chemistry there anymore. He said, here are some things that you can do to change the chemistry of your marriage. All marriages have to be worked upon. All marriages need to be replenished and refueled. So can I say it every single day, daily divert to have some time together, every week withdraw from everything else and spend some time together, and then every year put it in your budget where you have the time to abandon annually and spend some time alone with your life, wife. And then finally this morning, be prayer partners. Have a date night, but also be prayer partners. <laughs> And I'm out of time, so I'm going to be very brief here, and then we're going to pray. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 says, Let's think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Now, we always hear this talked about in the Bible as the church gathering, and that's true. That's the proper application. But sometimes there's more than one application. Doesn't change the truth, but sometimes there's more than one application. I want to think of ways. Becky wants to think of ways to motivate me to acts of love. That's changing the chemistry. I want to think of ways to motivate Becky to good work. She wants to think of ways to motivate me. And let's not neglect our meeting together. Every couple is different. Maybe, maybe you don't pray together every single day. But surely you can pray together at least one day a week, right? Maybe you don't have a devotional time together every single day. I think that's the standard we should reach for, but I understand everybody is different. But if you can't pray together weekly, there's going to be a slow death in your marriage spiritually. There's something about a wife listening to her husband pray, and there's something about a husband 
listening to his wife pray. Jesus said one time, he says, Lord, I'm not praying this just to you, but I'm praying this so that they will hear. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you've ever been with me to lunch, breakfast, or dinner, you know most of the time I'm a quick draw. I'll say, Larry, why don't you pray? Danny, why don't you pray? Because I learn so much about what's on the hearts of other people when I hear them pray. And when I listen to Becky pray, I know what to pray about with Becky as well. Does that make sense? Now, I hope that when you leave, it's been like you've been refreshed. You've had a cup of coffee. You've stretched. Maybe you've been stretched, and you're getting back in your car, and you're getting back on the highway, because I know when you leave here, it's going to be 70 miles an hour if you're safe and legal. And if you're not, it's going to be 80 miles an hour. But I hope that you have some truth here that will keep you between the guardrails of the interstate so that as we live life in the fast lane, we build godly homes for the glory of God, our children, and our enjoyment of one another. Can you say amen? Stand with me this morning. I love you, Jesus, with all my heart. To you, I owe everything, Lord. And as I pray with the staff this morning, so now I pray with this church and those that are watching online. I know that it's not through persuasive words or rhetoric or clever outlines that people are saved and lives are changed. But it's through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you'll cause this message to burn like a flame, a torch in the hearts of every man and woman here, in the hearts of everyone that want to be married, that we will build godly homes for the glory of God. And if you're here or if you're watching online and you've never committed your life to Jesus, I'm asking you right now, would you trust that the God who created you, you are not an accident. The cross was not an accident. But you are God's love. He loved you so much that you would commit your life to Him today. So would you pray this prayer with me? Say, Heavenly Father, I trust you. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. As much as I know how, I am committing myself to you today. And make me a brand new creation in Christ. Amen, amen, and amen. Now may the Lord bless you. May he shower upon you all the affection and the love of heaven. May he help you to build homes with your words and with your actions that will shine with the glory of God. And as you get older, may your kisses for one another wake your neighbors up like a teapot whistling. And that send you forth in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.
Thank you for joining us today for Woodland Church on our YouTube channel. I hope you'll take a moment and click that subscribe button and also click the notifications bell so that you'll know when new things are posted. We're always putting new material up so that you can be a part of everything that's going on. We want to share those with you and we hope that they will encourage you and strengthen you in your faith as you watch. You can also find out more about Woodland Church by going to our website at woodland.church. You can find out all about us and also upcoming events. Again, thank you for joining us today.